You are listening to Studying Pixels, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simon. I'm a game studies scholar from Germany. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Am I alone today again? <laughs> I sure hope not, because we're going to be talking about historical problem spaces. And even though Dan is not with me, which is very sad, I have got an interesting guest, Jeremiah McCall. He has taught history at the Cincinnati Country Day School for 20 years, and he published several books on ancient history. He is especially interested in how video games portray history and how they can be employed to teach history in a classroom setting. In 2011, Jeremiah published a book titled Gaming the Past, Using Video Games to Teach Secondary History. And you can find that book as well as lots more of his writing linked in the show notes. He also maintains a website called GamingThePast.net, where he writes about the intersection between history and video games. And I'm very happy to have him on the show today. But before we jump into that, I briefly want to remind you that Studying Pixels is, of course, a free show and we need funding in some form. And that is why we have Studying Pixels Plus. There, you can get all of our episodes entirely ad-free you can get a lovely sticker that has our beautiful mascot Pixelcoon on it and monthly plus episodes. Some of them are deep dives into video game culture. Others really can help you study. If you're curious about that, then go to studyingpixels.com plus to find out more. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Now, without further ado, let's talk about games as historical problem spaces. Let's talk to video game historian Jeremiah McCall. Hi, Jeremiah. Hi, Stefan. What does history mean to you? What got you into saying, I want to dedicate my life to studying and teaching history? Um, it's a really great question. Um, uh, as you know, maybe listeners don't know, I've been teaching high school history for 
20 plus years and um, history teachers have the experience that when anybody asks them what they do and they tell them, then then the person they tell says, oh, I never liked that very much. Um, and I think the reason lots of people don't like history very much is they very much see it as here's a list of things that happened. We're going to tell you the order. We're going to tell you what, what it means. We're going to tell you why it happened and, and what the results are. And for me, this isn't this isn't my idea by any means. I've I've sort of been part of a community learning this as I've gone through the years of teaching. Um, history is not an, it's not an established list of events or facts or what have you. It's really um, it, it, in my article on historical problem spaces, I call it a curated representation of the past. We are selecting evidence. We are selecting topics that we want to talk about, and we're leaving lots of stuff out, um, and then we're providing some kind of representation in some form of medium um, um, to people about the past and saying, here, here's my, here's my model or picture or text about the past. Um, um, what do you think? But aren't these selections that we make usually very strongly oriented on numbers and on archival documents on i'm talking about you know like years and dates and people important people historically important people so that eventually the distinction between it's simply a list of facts and it's a representation of those facts that we have selected is that a, a distinction that truly matters eventually i think i mean for 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 me i think there's a couple of things going on i think that that one is recognizing which, I mean, anybody who's a practicing historian knows this, but I don't think it's widely thought about that, that history is so much speculation. I, I'm not, I'm not one of those people that says there's nothing objective we can try and do. I actually believe that trying to be objective is important. I do recognize, however, at the end of the day, we're not in the past. We're picking stuff that seems to represent it and talking about it. So for me, it's kind of two parts. One, just recognizing that selectivity, but two, recognizing that, I don't know if it's scalable is the right word, but, but the work that an academic historian does or the representations they do, it's not really qualitatively different from what you do when you're talking with your friends about the past or you're learning from your parents about your family history or, you know, whatever it is, because um, we're, we're all fascinated by the past, just not necessarily the school pa taught past. So for me, that's part of it, is that it's really opening up what history is to lots of people. So basically, instead of saying we should look at it as this is what happened and now we teach to children like, please learn this, we ought to recognize that we engage in a process of selection and every process of selection necessarily has its blind spots. And by haggling things out together, we can try and identify where these blind spots are and how that shapes our understanding of the past. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. It's negotiated, right? We, we, the community, however you define that, it could be just you and me, right? Our, our talk through with each other what we think are uh, legitimate and not legitimate selections, and your, and and your burden of proof. I say this to my ninth graders: your burden of proof changes with your audience. When you're sitting around with your friends as a teenager arguing about what happened at some certain point, if you are, hopefully somebody's arguing about the past at that early age. Um, You don't need any sources. You just need to say it as authoritatively as possible and everybody believes you. And that's not going to be the same standard you're going to need in a community of scholars 
That's not going to be a standard you're going to need as a teacher. So, so, but yeah, I think you're right. I think it is um, uh, sort of a negotiated discussion. And I guess the other thing I take from that, and this is where it really helps me with looking at games as history, is that if we and academic history is great. I do it. I'm trained in it. I think it's great. I think there are skills of an academic historian that are really useful for people to learn. So no, no uh, uh, disrespect on, on that field or my field. But if we sever the idea that history has to be a record from the professionals, and we say that it's a negotiation of selective things, which is kind of where I'm going with what you're saying, and we say it's in a medium, and we don't specify the medium, it then becomes possible for games to be history um, because they're representing the past uh, selectively um, in a medium to people. And so I think that's part of it too that's really powerful. Exactly. The medium totally matters. And the medium is at the center of our discussion today. When I was in school, we mostly learned history from textbooks. And I think twice a year we were shown nothing new on the Western front. <laughs> like, that's basically it. Now, you oh, yeah. engage with video games, and I wonder, where does your fascination for history, specifically in video games, come from? And you're, you're of an age, too, I'm sure, where, right, we're all of this sort of long generation of people that grew up with video games, and I think that's got to be part of it. Uh, I am getting on in middle age, and so the Atari 2600 back in 1980 was the first computer um, uh, game uh, system that I had, and so I have always loved video games for the the worlds and the decision-making and and the adventure and everything like that, and so um, I I also have loved history as long as I can remember. I used to um, uh, read biographies and, and things like that when I remember being in fifth and sixth grade and things like that. For me, um, it's a combining of the two, but I, but I, I guess the, the bridging point for me was as an educator. Um, I went on to study history uh, and get a PhD in it, and there was really, I mean, I got my PhD in 2000. There was really, I mean, I guess Espen Arseth was talking about games in the late 90s, but there was nobody talking about games and history really at that point, and I wasn't either. And I started working with some physical games that I had made. And then I ended up being in a place that Cincinnati Country Day School, the school that I've worked at and love, um, where we had access to computers. And I said, wow, at some point I made the leap and I'm not the only one. And I don't think I was the first. I think Kurt Squire thought about it certainly earlier than I did um, that civilization uh, three at that point, civilization three seems to be saying some things about the past that aren't that they're not that wrong. And that was kind of the individual insight. So can I have kids, can I have students look at that and play it, read and talk about some of the historical evidence and think about how well does that game model reality? Can I imagine, or how can I imagine this conversation when you go to the school's dean and you say, I would like to play Civilization Three with the kids? I mean, one of the nice things is that my school administration has always been fantastically open to these things. So that was really cool. But absolutely, I was working in a field where there was a prejudice that these are these games are not to be used for anything serious. And and of course, um, what, 2004 or five, right? I think we were very much in still very much the video games promoting, you know, awful violence and first person shooters being the only way that games were perceived and stuff like that. Um, honestly, 
I think I got lucky uh, between having a supportive administration. And I also think I was lucky that I had a PhD. Whether that actually meant that I knew anything or not, I think it gave me some cover to be able to, to experiment a little bit. It gave me I guess, credibility. And I took it. I wasn't going to let it waste it. But how did the kids react then? Because I know that nowadays it is still not very widespread, but it is relatively common, at least at some schools and with some teachers, so that children would not be entirely surprised if a, a teacher comes in and says, like, we're going to play 15 minutes of this serious game or something. But back in the day, I imagine it to be much different. It must have been a highlight for many of these children and for others maybe utterly befuddling as to why am I going to play that in school? You pegged it perfectly. And, and, and I think a lot of people don't kind of recognize those two different poles that the kids could be between. Um, a, a lot of times people say video games, fantastic. Everybody must love it. But it's been my, case, my experience that that's absolutely not the case. There are, there are uh, children who don't identify as gamers. I actually work very hard never to use that term in my classes because I don't want people alienated by their sense of that. But people who don't think that they play games, don't want to be associated with playing games, people who are really good at taking notes and writing responses that the teachers like, they can feel very threatened by this as well. So there's kids who think it's great, kids who think it's daunting. If the justification was everybody loves games and they're fun, so we should do it. That's, that's not a good pedagogy. Um, and so I tried to really push through and think about what is it we're doing when we're looking at games? Um, and that's a question I, I continue to ask myself. Um, absolutely. So yeah, all, all over the field on, uh, on, on this. Um, I've done enough of it now that, uh, and we, and we do have a middle school attached to our upper school. So I've got some good rep going on. They call me DMAC for Dr. McCall. And, uh, <laughs> and the word is out that they will get to play some games. That's not all they do, <laughs> but they do get to play some games. Well, but isn't that nice if you have this kind of effect that people join out of curiosity um, or because they imagine to have fun while playing video games in a class. I can totally relate to that because I teach game studies at university and right. for students it's the same. It's like, oh, we're going to play uh, Super Mario in this course? Cool. That is a perfect invitation to take it a step further and say like, okay, so now we've played that game. Now let's think about what we've done in that game, what we've seen, what we've experienced and analytically dissected. Is that an approach that you take? At some point, it sort of clicked for me that education is the process of making people slow down and analyze what they'd rather not slow down and analyze, right? Whether it's literature or video games or, or anything like that. So absolutely. The nice thing about that is it appeals to some people who want to do that. But then, of course, you know, your hardcore gamer who would just rather kind of blaze through, they, they really wish you weren't making them slow down and talk about these things. But yeah, I think it's, I think it's absolutely that. Like, let's take this... this uh, uh, medium phenomenon and 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 let's and let's break it apart and dissect it and see what's going on so that we can better understand them and I, I guess this is all right we're humanists so so we can better understand people and and how they do things yeah I really like the idea of saying being a quote unquote gamer or let's say being a person or a kid experienced with video games that does not necessarily mean that you have an advantage in analyzing them because you might be used to playing them for fun and there might even be a certain obstacle or resistance because if you consider them 
only as a thing that you do after school to just, you know, relax a little bit, which is perfectly fine. Right? That's what games right. really are for to, to a huge degree. But then making them slow down, that can also be an arduous process, even for people who have experience with video. Yeah, that close reading is fundamental, particularly, I think, if you're trying to get at what a game is suggesting about the world or life or things like that. I, I think it really, it's not the only thing going on, but one thing that's going on is they're designing this very carefully. So let's look at what they've got and go from there to extend maybe sort of greater theories on it. Yeah, and it's not necessarily natural for a good game player. It just, it's, it's, it's a different skill set. They can do it, but it's a different skill set. Now, one of the most common perspectives in studying history, but especially also studying history in video games, is to look at things from the perspective of, is this authentic? Is this realistic? Is this historically correct? To make use of that uh, loaded phrase, now, you're suggesting that we go a little bit beyond that. What do you think, why is it a problem to see things as, or analyze things from the perspective of, is it historically correct? Is it authentic? Yeah, so, so the interesting thing uh, uh, is that, like, historically correct and authentic in, in the historical game studies field are not synonymous. My understanding of authentic, people can write me hate emails if I've messed it up, is that it has the, the subjective and somewhat arbitrary sense that something is real, like how it was. That doesn't necessarily have anything to do with whether it's actually historically correct, if we mean by that goes along with the historical record. So that's the first thing. But I think, so, so looking at historical correctness, the problem is once you start to unpack these different games, historically correct doesn't work very well as a term. Let me give you a simple case. Um, I'm working on an article on this. Assassin's Creed Odyssey. If you play Assassin's Creed Odyssey and you walk through the fields, you'll see peasants working the fields and they're harvest, harvesting food. You see that visually. But in, unless I'm missing something, unless the coders put this in here and chose not to use it, which would be very odd, there is no agriculture model. There is no food variable. Nobody eats in the game. So the peasant's labor is not being turned into food for, for food systems. And that's fine. That's Because what is being modeled is the killability of that peasant. That's kind of one of the creepy undertones, right? They are being modeled as a system, but the system they're being modeled in is, is a, can I kill them? Can I jump over them? Can I shove them when they're in my way? Okay. So uh, the game I'm comparing it to is a real-time strategy called Hegemony Wars of Ancient Greece. I have never heard that title. <laughs> yeah, it's a terrific game. It's about, oh, it might be 10 years old at this point. Um, but it definitely follows the conventions of real-time strategies. So if you're thinking in terms of Age of Empires or Warcraft or Starcraft, you've got a good visual. Well, in that case, they have farms. And the farms are places that you can occupy with workers. And if you occupy the uh, farms with workers, then they produce food. The food can be connected to cities through supply lines, and then the soldiers consume that food. But it's a, but it's a stylized real-time strategy game where all units are minions. They all obey mindlessly whatever you do. Uh, they kind of jump around and glom in ways that those real-time soldiers do. And... So at a certain level, is that historically correct and Assassin's Creed is not? 
well, no, surely that's not what's going on, but it doesn't work the other way too. You don't say that, oh, hegemony, or you don't say that Assassin's Creed is doing it right because it looks more verisimilitudinous. Phew, tough word. <laughs> and hegemony does not. So I think that's where uh, um, uh, uh, historical correctness starts to be a problem and authenticity, I think, uh, really helps. But the problem with authenticity that I have, I think it's fantastic. Uh, the problem is, you're really getting into player reception there. And there's still not a lot of work on the historical side. What are players thinking historically or how are they perceiving these things? Um, we're getting some work on that, but it, it, mine tends to focus on what are the designers doing? Cause that's a more controllable kind of <laughs> set of data. And what are the designers doing in those two examples that you've given is they are making a different decision in the process of selecting which elements to represent, right? Because in Assassin's Creed, they're focusing on trying to create this kind of um, palpable, let's say, authentic atmosphere when you walk through those fields where you would maybe see those workers, uh, whereas they don't value that much that there's kind of a systematic process in order to, you know, provide food for the society, because that's just not part of, of that game. And that's kind of a different process of selection, but it's not necessarily better or worse than the other example that you have given. Yeah, I think that's that's a good way to look at it. Um, and 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 uh, Adam Chapman, who's who wrote a fantastic book on games as digital history in 2016, paved some good ground for us by saying, well, if you look at um, a, a game like Assassin's Creed Odyssey, sorry, Adam, if I'm misrepresenting you, uh, and you look at a game like Hegemony Rome, they have two different simulation styles. One that he would call realist, which doesn't mean it's real. It means it's trying to give you that immersive kind of look of verisimilarity. So it's not that, yeah, it's accurate. It's that it's that world. And then hegemony is giving you something that's more of a what he'd call a conceptual simulation, where the procedures of the game um, are are really where the history is being done. There's something else I think that's going on here that's really important that we have to think about, and that's genre. Assassin's Creed is both a third-person action genre and also what I'd call a, a brand genre. I, I would I would assert that if you look at games like Civilization and Age of Empires and Grand Theft Auto and all these things, they've got their own qualities, attributes, design features that form a genre that influence them, just like real-time strategy does. And so I would say Hegemony's model is a characteristically real-time strategy approach to that, and Assassin's Creed is a characteristically uh, Assassin's Creed type game, third person game. So when we look at how history is represented, we have to at least, and this is only one element out of many, at least consider that games are tied into genres. They are, they are tied to genre aesthetics, but also the logic of how game systems work in that uh, respective genre. That's what you're saying, right? Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and the, I, I don't have as many examples off the top of my head as I could, but they are legion. Um, did, did you ever play Valiant Hearts? Yeah, that was that first World War serious game. I'm going to say serious game, even though yeah, I don't yeah. like the distinction as such, produced by Ubisoft, correct? Yes. Like a 2D adventure game where you're running across trenches, you're trying to sneak past uh, enemy soldiers, and you're solving small puzzles. Yeah, yeah. And so it's a little bit platformy. And I think I think a lot of it is I'm a, I'm a PC gamer at heart. So I call them point and click adventures. But, you know, a, a lot of what's going on there is if you think about the old 1980s and 1990s Sierra Sierra adventure games and things like that with those puzzles, as you said, 
Well, so if you if you play the game, um, the example I always like to look at is if you look at the first level, I think it's the first level, and I believe they're doing the Battle of the Marne. And the French soldiers uh, are racing towards these German machine gun positions. And, okay, so think about that, right? Think about a, uh, a protagonist, a player agent, I call them, who's in the job of this French soldier who's trying to get past this machine gun nest. And we can visualize, right, how that would look in Battlefield or Call of Duty or something like that. And... We can visualize how that would look maybe in a war game where you were moving just little figures around, you know, like a classic war game, um, and, and how that might look. The way it looks in Valiant Hearts is it's turned into a puzzle game. You get up to the point, the machine gunner's firing, and you have to look around your environment in this 2D background and say, oh, there's this ladder up here. I wonder what how I can get that ladder to come down. And you throw the grenade, and it makes the ladder go down. And then um, I forget where you go from there, but you climb up and, 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 and sort of go on your way. And then you have to find a brick, and you have to find dynamite, and you do all these things. So I, I, think, it's, I think it's completely legitimate. And I think it's useful for us to say that's not World War I. That is a puzzle genre uh, shaping of World War I. And different and different genres would do it differently. Yeah. So absolutely, that's what I think. Yeah. And it's also a game that's deeply imbued with this claim for authenticity because Valiant Hearts is also one of these titles where you have things like actual photography, like photographs that have been scanned that or are informational texts that are included in the game that you can read and unlock. So is that maybe the actual function of authenticity to give games a kind of legitimacy a kind of well position of authority of saying of credibility as we said earlier in this conversation when i engage with it and i play it that i can say like oh wait so this has actually happened they actually use this kind of gas to you know pump it into the trenches in the first world war to cause as many casualties as possible and i should know that you know Yeah, I think that's a good way of looking at it. I think when you make a game that's a historical game, and that can be defined in lots of ways. Uh, um, I mean, the most broad definition is any game that contributes to historical conversations and topics. Uh, I, I tend to study ones that are a little more specifically referring to something in history, but no matter. But when you're doing that, and you're taking a game like Valiant Hearts, you've got explicit and implicit claims from the developers about their relationship of their game to the past, right? Um, explicitly, it happens all the time. Um, there's a great book that just came out from Esther Wright on um, Rockstar and Red Dead Redemption and all the different ways that they claimed, the developers uh, claimed that Red Dead Redemption was, you know, real history, getting into how it actually is and not doing this, you know, silly establishment history or stuff like that. So sometimes you get those very explicit claims. And I think Valiant Hearts does it sort of less, I mean, more tastefully than that, but but um, makes that claim too. And then you have the implicit claims, right? In that you could have designed a game about anything, but you chose to design a game about something that we recognize as historical. And I think that on a basic level, you're setting your expectations as designers, right? If somebody chooses to play Valiant Hearts and it seems to have nothing to do with their understandings of World War I, 
they're probably going to be disappointed. Um, you know, if, if you play Mario World, it is what it is. But if you play Valiant Hearts, you're expecting that it somehow, like you said, gets you into poison gas, gets you into machine guns. So, yeah, I think that authenticity, that sense is really important for players um, and therefore for designers in terms of players' expectations. We should also maybe mention that there might be several ways, at least that's what I think, of authenticity. One option is certainly to rely on this, on these factual info pieces that you integrate into a game, but it also pertains to the potentially authentic experience of having lived at that time or having been involved in such a situation of, of warfare, of the First World War, and this kind of just... Uh, uh, fright and terror that you might experience. Valiant Hearts is not a particularly scary game, but it is emotional. It tells very personal stories of four characters that can be deeply moving. And these stories and in the way that they are moving, I would argue that that's not just decoration. It's not just a cherry on top, but this is part of what we would consider to be the lived reality in that time. Yes, there's also a dog in Valiant Hearts. Yes, there's also a dog who apparently thinks that there's somebody at the door. So, okay, he's happily running off, uh, as, you, as you were saying that. I think, I, yeah, I think that historical authenticity gets gets developed in different ways. Um, um, one, I, I think you laid it out really nicely there. I like how you framed it. Sometimes it's the attachment to documents and um, and extra details and multimedia and stuff like that. Uh, Age of Empires Four is doing that a lot. I haven't played it a lot, but I've done a little, and they've got those you know those YouTube uh, video quality things. Um, but then there's also games that allow you to kind of see how things are going on um, um, uh, in the world. Uh, I call it witnessing. I'm, I'm, I'm going back to my historical problem space framework uh, in an Assassin's Creed game. Arguably, I'm going to argue it. There is almost nothing that the player agent is doing in that game that can map on directly to an identifiable historical person. Uh, not in the way they're doing it, right? They're doing super parkour athletics. They're doing stealth murder. They're leveling up to superhuman levels practically on things like that. But what you get is witnessing. You get to see, right? ancient whatever it is at the time, right? Ancient Greece or medieval England or things like that. You get to talk to the, the characters. Um, so, but that becomes di very different from a Age of Empires, maybe, where you're engaging in systems. No matter how simplistic, you're still kind of engaging in systems. And actually, even though it, it's a little strange to say, kind of have a more identifiable historical role as leader of the, you know, name your, fa name your faction. The, two, the decisions you make in, in uh, something like Age of Empires arguably map, map on to historical decision makers, right? Commanders, generals, things like that, a little more than your Assassin's Creed character maps on. And then you've got Valiant Hearts, where it's almost maybe what I would call, and these aren't all distinct, but it's almost like a, a literary approach where you're getting the, the what, what, you know, uh, uh, was it Aristotle or Harold Bloom or something like that, right? Where like history will tell you what's specific and literature will tell you what's universally true. So what does it feel like to be around poison gas? What does it feel like to be in a sick hospital and things like that? So yeah, they're all very different. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now let's get into the historical problem space framework that we've mentioned a couple of times now. And this is basically a model or a, yeah, let's stick with the term framework, a framework that you developed um, where you say this is a way in which we can learn to analyze the representation of history in video games. How does that framework work? <laughs> yeah, sure. So um, I, so I, 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 about a decade ago, there's a great blog. I highly recommend it called play the past. Um, that, uh, that is your blog, isn't it? Uh, no, that's not mine. Mine's gaming the past. Gaming the past. <laughs> ah, play the past and gaming the past. Yes. So play the past. They actually started about the same time. And the reason they started is I got invited by the, the, uh, early career. We were all younger scholars, um, working on video games and history with play the past. And I was invited to be one of the starting, uh, writers, which I'm still very grateful for. It really helped me a lot in kind of getting through my ideas. Gaming the past, I made at the same time for the teaching side of that. But then I started working on games as history and now it's all jumbled together. Um, but about a decade ago, I wrote an essay called, it's still up there, uh, called "Historical Prob- Games as Historical Problem Spaces, Criticism and Classroom Use. There had been this great discussion going on. At that particular point, it was about Sid Meier's 2008 colonization redo. And there's a lot of stuff in colonization 2008, the redo, that is very deeply offensive, very, very pro-colonial, very dismissing of, of marginalized people, all sorts of stuff. Um, and 
And what do you know? Because it's coming from 1994's colonization. And the farther back we go, right, the more um, hegemonic, if you will, the more, more hegemonic games are about things like imperialism because they tended to ma- be made by almost exclusively white, almost exclusively male, almost exclusively heteronormative uh, uh, people designing them. So, okay, so that's kind of uh, background stuff. So these scholars, uh, several of them were analyzing um, a couple of things in colonization. One, that there's no enslavement, right? And, and the enslavement of African and Caribbean peoples, um, um, mostly African, obviously, um, um, was such a central horror of colonization in the Americas. So how do you have a game that puts you in the position of England, Holland, France, can't remember, um, uh, you know, or Spain, <laughs> Duh. Um, h- how do you, how do you do that, but not have enslaved people? And how do you do that and not have epidemic disease? And then another big one that they were discussing is how, how do you do that and, and represent, uh, Native American peoples that way in, in ways that make them really kind of less agents. And, I got, and I was thinking about all this, and these critiques were so so terrific. It was really expanding my mind. I think I've gotten to be much. I, I think that the study of games has made me ever more inclusive and ever more embracing of diversity. So it's really kind of a neat thing. But what I said to myself is, okay, we need to stop for a second. Colonization is a video game, and the parts of a video game have to be understood. I think in relation to each other. When, when uh, a Native American person is being depicted in the game, it's not like a painting of a Native American person. It's not like a text describing a Native American person. It is a code-based functioning representation in a game. And then I went from there and said, and what is that game? Well, all history games um, have create what I call historical problem spaces. They present the past in terms of a player agent, right? That's your main character, who's in some kind of game world has goals set for them by the designer, which they they can choose to ignore, but oftentimes we try and reach the goals the designers met. And the problem is how in that game world to work with or against or around the things that are in it, the elements, in order to get the goal. So you have to look at Native Americans in colonization and say, well, what role are they following as functional game things? When you look at no epidemiology, what role do you think that would have to take in the mechanical system they've come up with? Um, and so I've been kind of iterating on that for over a decade and, and wrote a game studies article uh, a couple of years ago, just trying to lay out how do we talk about games as functioning systems? What, what, what terms can we use? What concepts can we use to remember that games are their own unique medium? They, and, and, you could do this with board games too, but when you look at video games, you get that underlying code basis, right? This is all getting cranked down into things that machines can interpret and integrate. So if we're analyzing the history in those games, don't forget that they are games and each piece has to functionally relate to the whole. And that also makes a huge difference for how people experience those games. Because I remember, just as a, an anecdotal example, I played Civilization VI recently, again, <laughs> and uh, they quite expanded upon certain matters of uh, politics, but also, let's say, 
politically engaged subjects such as climate change, uh, which is something that they very deliberately represent in such a way that what I found really cool, you can progress faster in the game by building coal mines and relying on things like, you know, nuclear energy and so on, getting these things uh, very early on and you will build up a huge military and so on. But what you will eventually cause are CO2 emissions and the sea level will rise and you will lose part of the land. And it's it's not reversible in many ways. You can build dams and stuff, of course. But I had this kind of imminent feeling. I didn't know that this is something that would come later to such a great impact, right? And of course, from my gaming logic, I think, of course, I want the huge military because who knows? I'm not going for the domination victory, but I might if I have to. So, you know, better be sure. Oh, I understand. <laughs> and then I, I face all of these consequences and see all of the horrors that it causes this, all of this destruction and the hatred that I'm faced with by the other leaders. And I start to change my ways and I start to think like, oh, we really need to get out of coal energy. We need to basically plaster the world with solar panels. This is very much a position that uh, it seems that the world is slowly, finally acknowledging. Yes, um, and this hopefully. Is a, this is a very interesting way of how a game can argue this by the way of its procedures, by the way of its logics, its systems that it guides you through so that you have this realization yourself as the player. Yeah, and, 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 and of course, uh, again, I'm, there's so many people whose work is so influential here, right? So we should definitely men- uh, mention Ian Bogost. Procedural rhetoric, yes. A, a game that's really focused on the visuals may not have as much historical procedure going on. Um, uh, in it as, say, a game that's more of a strategy game or a tactical game or things like that. And, and, and Adam Chapman told us that, you know, pointed that out to us. Um, what I'm saying, though, is that if it's a video game, it is ultimately going to go down to mechanics. Assassin's Creed does have mechanics for how the right it, it just happens to be a game where physics for example is going to be a play a real role well that's historical uh, right uh, being able to you know like you fall and you hit the ground that's very historical <laughs> right and, and and so yeah so they're all going to do this but then you can get to something like civilization six where they've got all these structures put together to lead you to that and and so what i would say is you know you can't understand um how climate change is represented in the game without understanding that all that other stuff you gave and you gave an excellent example right it's system based the 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 uh climate change is linked to the coal plants and the coal plants are linked to your military industrial complex that you want to build up and those those uh uh elements of the game i'd call them uh, coal mines and soldiers um, very much fit with your goals, right? Where you want to win the game in one of however many five, six ways there are, right? You got your culture victory and your domination victory and your and this and that. I've only played once or twice Civilization VI. Um, I, these are great games. I use and analyze them so much that I need probably about a 10-year break. Yeah, <laughs> um, I can relate. <laughs> yeah. So, so, but I, yeah. So, so all those things, right, that you were talking about that kind of moved you to think about um, climate change and, and it's dramatic and, and horrific and we must act, you know, effect on, on the world um, came to you from a system where all those parts had to fit together. And if one of them was different, you might have reached a different conclusion. So historical problem space framework, the essential takeaway that I have so far is that we say 
there are all of these individual elements and they are perfectly fine to analyze on their own at first when it comes to such a thing like you've got Karl Marx in Assassin's Creed, right? Who's represented in a certain way. You've got uh, factual information that's being included. You've got a system integration with the logic of the operations of, uh, of, of the game and how things behave and the decisions that you make as a player. But ultimately, and that seems to be the most uh, important point that you're trying to stress, is we need to understand how they work in correlation with one another within this system that is the game. I should cite you. That's a, you, that's a great <laughs> that's a great job summing up uh, uh, what I'm trying to do. Um, uh, probably a good point to stress. None of this is about blaming or absolving game developers from their from their points of view. It's not like okay, um, I can see that in uh, going back to colonization. I can see back in colonization that the way Native American peoples are represented fits functionally within what they're trying to trying to do. And that doesn't mean it's okay. But it does mean that we need to understand it in in those ways. And I think that that fundamental question of how do we take historical content phenomena and represent it in game mechanics is really kind of a big thing. And you can lose sight of it. You can lose sight of it and just say, okay, this this element in the game, this, you know, coal mines, um, um, I, I'm going to judge it on its own terms without without considering the fact that it's a game. So yeah, very much so that at the end of the day, it's not the only explanation. I guess we should say that too. That's important, right? Is that we are all in cultural contexts. We all have lots of prejudices and values and, and socioeconomic forces and everything like that shaping us. But still in a game, that's all coming out as a functional system. Yeah. And that leads us back to this initial statement of history is simply the curated representation of the past, because that would then mean that when we look at the representation of marginalized identities, we always have to consider that we're never just looking at things factually as how they were. There is value in trying to establish that objectively, of course, but we cannot go beyond the perspectives that we have as well and consider that the reconstructions happen from a contemporary perspective with our contemporary sensitivities, right? Is that what you're saying when it comes to the representation of marginalized identities? Yeah, and 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 so so going even a little further with that, right? Um, games, of, of course, have a point of view. You've talked about this with Dan on your show many times. I mean, games have a point of view. Saying that games present the past as a, as a historical problem space, right? The agent with goals in a world, right? absolutely means it has a point of view. Who you pick to be your historical agent is critical, and games that have marginalized people as historical agents are still very uncommon. We're getting some. There's a great game called When Rivers Were Trails, which is an Oregon Trail-inspired Native American look at displacement from colonial policies. There's Through the Darkest of Times, where you're a resistance group to Hitler and the Holocaust. Um, so that's happening, but so many of our games, right, are focused on, again, mostly white, mostly male, mostly heteronormative um, um, people. So that's one thing there that I think is important when you're talking about marginalized people being represented. But the other thing is that historical problem spaces are designed so that the non-player agents are instrumentalized. They are seen in terms of, do they help me or do they hurt me? And if they help me, chances are very good that they help me by me giving them orders that they will always obey. 
if they hurt me, I've got to do something, uh, maybe destroy them, maybe neutralize them in some non-destroying way. So if you think about, if you think about, um, go back to colonialism, right? Take, take a, take a game from the nineties about imperialism. It's going to have a Western player agent protagonist and all the other agents in there, if they're represented as all are going to be marginalized in terms of what do I need to do to conquer this place for, for me. So, yeah, yeah. I I think there's a lot of ramifications in that. I think maybe I want to say one more time though, it doesn't have to be that way. You can have the historical problem space focused on a person who has been marginalized, a person whose voice has not been heard as much. And, and that is happening more and more. Um, so it doesn't have to marginalize people. Um, it just really can, if you're not paying attention. I definitely see that happening in recent years, more and more. That is that there's a greater awareness. There's also a, a greater desire to enable people who come from marginalized backgrounds to have the tools to make their own games and represent their own take, as you just mentioned, on certain matters that subverts this kind of imperialistic Western notion of the world is up for the taking and the only way forward is rapid expansion, basically. Right, right. No, I think it's very true. So this is controversial, but if we take the definition of a game as an artificial competition uh, dictated by rules, and it has some kind of quantifiable outcome. You're trying to achieve something, there's rules for how you do it, and you can win or lose. Totally a great argument about whether that's the, the all-inclusive uh, definition of games. But if you're following that model, then all historical games following that model, even historical games which focus on a marginalized player agent, are still going to be historical problem spaces. They're still going to have a set of goals contextualize in a world where there are things in the world that can help you or can hinder you. Uh, so that's, that starts to really fascinate me. It, it, it suggests that, you know, may, maybe, maybe this is just a consequence of this particular understanding of game. And there's nothing wrong with that. I like games where I get to try and achieve things. Um, but it is interesting how it, how it causes us to represent the past. Says video game historian Jeremiah McCall. Thank you so very much for the conversation. Of course, if you want to know more, then you can visit gamingthepast.net. That is gamingthepast.net. You can also find Jeremiah's books and articles that we've mentioned throughout the interview linked in the show notes. Of course, as always, thank you so very much out there for listening to this show. You can feel free to submit your thoughts and questions to studyingpixels.com slash contact. If you want to support the show, then feel free to check out studyingpixels.com slash plus, and we will see each other again next week. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.